This morning's scripture will be from Acts chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do, the ra- why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're grateful for this moment. Father, in our being called together to worship you and to recognize that you are the supreme value of the universe and that although we are rooted in the earth, our hearts are in heaven with you, Father. And we pray that as we study this text, that you will fill our minds with truths too weighty for us to bear lightly, truths that will transform us, truths that will grow us more deeply, disciples of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth, in such a way that we make you look beautiful. So to this end, Father, we ask that you give us eyes to see this text and ears to hear this text in such a way that we are changed. We pray this as we pray it every week, Father, in the name of Jesus, and to your glory, amen. You know, it doesn't really matter how many times you read a scripture or you hear a scripture read there's just something that sort of catches you about a text like Acts chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. And there are really two things that catch our, our attention. One is, they prayed for boldness and nothing else. They prayed for boldness. Now, they'll pray for other things in other places, but in this particular moment, in their context and in their time, they're praying for boldness. And the second thing is that there's the shaking of the walls the literal shaking of the walls in which they prayed that prayer. 
Now we want to we want to think about prayer this morning, specifically the one found in Acts chapter four. But I, I want us to step out of just thinking about prayer and think about something that might seem a little disconnected, a little disjointed, but uh, I, I, I want to pull it back together here in a minute. And that is this idea of what it means to have a worldview. Up here on the screen, and if you want to jot this down, you can, but a, a worldview is the way you understand the world. And your worldview for, for you and for me and for really anybody else, it doesn't, you know, everybody has a worldview whether they recognize it or not. A worldview is where you recognize what is reality. In your worldview, at the most basic concept of your understanding, is that this is the ultimate reality. Out of that ultimate reality, you begin to develop some beliefs. These are the things that are true about the world, and these are things that are true about people, and these are the things that are not so true about the world and people. And out of those truths that you begin to formulate and, and, and think about and to embrace and accept and to understand, you begin to, to build values. That when you understand all of these truths, you begin to see that there are some truths that are more deeply embedded in, in, in reality, and there are others that are true but maybe not so important. And you begin to develop a value system where you're able to discern in your own life this thing is important and this thing is of ultimate importance. And out of that value system then comes your behavior. Based on what you hold to be true and what you, you deem to be important, you then behave. This is what you do. So our behavior comes from what we believe to be ultimate reality at the core of everything that we hold at the, at the pencil point of what we believe to be the ultimate reality, that's where our behavior comes. Now think about how our worldview as, as, a, as a disciple of Jesus begins to form the way that we pray. Our worldview as disciples of Jesus, ironically, begins before there's even a world. Our worldview begins the very beginning of the Bible before there is a creation with these simple words, in the beginning, what? God. God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth is, is known as a mirrorism, and it means that uh, Moses is jotting this down through the Spirit, and he's, he's talking about the poles. The, the, the far end in, uh, of one side and the far end of the other side, the heavens and the earth, and it means everything in between. Our worldview is that in the beginning, God created everything. Now again, the subject of our prayers and the frequency in which we pray these specific prayers indicate what is at the core of our lives. Now if we pray a lot, about things that are temporary, things that might get shaken, then when those things are shaken, then we are too. But if at the core of our worldview is something that is unshakable, then when that thing is threatened, we will not be shaken because it's unshakable. Now the question, getting back into prayer, is the cause for which Jesus Christ died, being routed in the United States, comes because we are habituated to praying very common prayer and not being bold in prayer that sees that that's based 
in the reality that God is and creates and loves and goes the second mile and is patient in all of the characteristics of God that we discover from Genesis to the maps is our prayer bold because of that understanding that we embrace and all of those values is that how we pray or is that the core something else and that's what causes us to pray common prayers think about the context of 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 this prayer that is prayed in acts chapter 4 in acts chapter 2 you have 3,000 people unexpected the disciples are all together the holy spirit falls in in fulfillment of joel chapter 2 and at the end of that sermon these people are just cut to the heart and they realize that they have they have not only done evil but the evil inside of them has taken them to the point whether it was intellectual or whatever you might want to uh, uh, base that evil it had taken them to the point where they recognized that they were capable of crucifying and killing and murdering and lynching the son of god that they believed in cut to the heart all of a sudden, 3,000 people being baptized and repenting and confessing that Jesus is the Lord, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, which drives them into this, this special relationship that we talked about last week, this fellowship. I mean, these are really heady days when you find the, the, this kind of work going on. And then in Acts chapter 3, which is right before the passage that Prentice read for us, you have Peter and John. They're going up to the temple at the, the, the hour of prayer. They're going through that beautiful gate. And here's this fella that has been lame for 40 years. And they heal him, and it creates a, a positive kind of commotion around that temple area. Peter preaches the second sermon. And by the time you get to the first couple of verses of Acts chapter 4, you have the church growing. And now it's gigantic by our proportions, by our imagination. They've gotten to the place where they can only count the men, and it's about 5,000, which means that the church is over 10,000 at this point in Jerusalem. Well, in Acts chapter 4, the priests, captain of the temple guard, Sadducees who are part of that Levitical family in charge of most of the things going on in Israel but primarily the temple they come up to Peter and John and they confront them but because it's kind of late in the day they decide we'll just put them in a cell and let them cool their heels a little bit and then they call them in the next morning and what you find beginning in Acts chapter 4 are really a series the beginning of a series of, of problems and issues and pushback and trouble that's going to come to the church and right here it's basically going to be defined as who gave you the authority to preach in this place and on top of that why are you preaching in the name of jesus a name that everybody in jerusalem knows that we as the religious leaders of this nation have rejected we are the ones who condemned him to die and so the conversation sort of goes like this peter asked why in the world are we here? Why have you brought us to this place? Is it because here's this guy that's been lame for 40 years, all of a sudden he can walk, and that's why we're in trouble with you? And they go, no, that's not it at all. What we're upset about is that we have told you that this Jesus is condemned in persona non grata. And Luke records for us that they threatened them and then they let them go. And so here, Peter and John, they're walking back to the, uh, the believers, 
And they're discussing with themselves, if we stop preaching the gospel, if we stop talking about the resurrection of Jesus as a reality, that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he was resurrected and that he has been exalted to the right hand of God, and there is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. If we stop preaching that, we get to save our lives and save our money and save our homes and save our families? Sorry, can't do that. They are unshakable. They are unshakable. And they go back to the church and they report. And then they pray. And in this prayer, we see three important things that should be a part of our prayers. They see a clear vision of God. They see a clear vision of the world. And they have a clear vision of the mission that God has given them. I want us to begin talking about that middle one. Let's start talking about the clear vision of the world. Right in the middle of that prayer, there is a recognition that the world is thus, thus have we made it. Now going back to Genesis, one of the first truths about the world is that God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation. In Genesis chapter 3, right off the bat, you have the serpent showing up. He is more shrewd and crafty than the other animals. There's a conversation with words and questions to Eve. She uh, uh, falls in the temptation, takes the fruit and eats of it, gives it to Adam. He takes and eats, and sin and, and, and death are introduced into the world. There is then the confrontation with God. They're hiding. Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? And then there's this oracle in which God begins to explain this is what the world is going to be like now that sin and death and disobedience and all of that has entered into it. And in the middle of that oracle, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. And what God is saying, because of what has happened at the beginning of the chapter, Because this has happened, there's going to be a struggle between that which recognizes God as the creator of the heavens and the earth and that which does not recognize God as such. And so in the middle of this prayer, after they've been confronted by the Sadducees and the priests and the captains of the temple, they speak the words of Psalm uh, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And they pray, the nations rage, the peoples plot the kings rise up rulers band together against the lord and against his anointed one now when david is writing that psalm he's just writing about the world as they pray this prayer they are having a personal experience of this in verse 27 Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Now, one of the really kind of astonishing things about that is how quickly they came to that conclusion. I mean, when you think about it, you think about the fact that here are these powerful people in the community in which you live, and not only that, they're recognized across the nation as as highest level of leadership, and these are the people that are threatening you. A lot of times, most of us would say, protect, 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 protect. What they recognize is that the world is thus, and thus have we made it. 
And the reason they recognized it is that they were prepared ahead of time. They knew that this was going to happen. I don't know if they knew when, but the church is going along splendidly as as we talked about earlier. I mean, the church is just growing. On a daily basis, the Lord is adding to their number, and then all of a sudden this pushback, but they recognized it for what it was. It wasn't the end of the world. It was fulfillment of things that they had been told by Jesus himself. You go to Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That's not very encouraging, is it? I mean, what if he had said, you know what, the world is a bunch of sheep, and I'm sending you out like wolves. We'd go, and I'm hungry, you know. But he says the opposite. I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. The implication being, you're going to be vulnerable. And in your own eyes, you're going to be defenseless. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. You drop down to verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. One of the important teachings about discipleship is that when we put on Christ, we are clothing ourselves with Christ. That's what Paul writes to the church in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with the Christ. If you clothe yourselves with Christ, which is what you're doing if you're a disciple of Jesus, and you can't be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple of Jesus, you will never, when you put him on, you will never be able to be camouflaged to the world. When you clothe yourself with Christ, you are saying that you want the world to see a person with a different worldview and different beliefs and a different value system and therefore different kinds of actions in the world. That's not always going to be appreciated. But what they will see is that here is a human being who has God and all that God is as his ultimate reality. And that's not always safe. And that's why we need the second thing, a clear vision of God. When, when Peter and John reported everything that happened, the natural inclination and response for these guys, for these fellows, was to pray. And one of the really interesting things about this prayer is how they refer to God. Our English translations say something along the lines of um, a sovereign God. And that's a really, really good translation, except it's not literal enough for us. What they actually refer to God as is as a despot. As a despot. A possessor of ultimate power and control. No one else in charge except the despot. The despot is the guy who rules without any checks or balances. Now, quite frankly, a despot is not a very popular or positive word in the English language in the 21st century in the Western world. It brings up someone who's sort of in it for themselves. He only cares about himself and his entourage. He uses other people for his own gain. He's anti-people and he's pro-himself. But notice what they say next in the prayer. 
you created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, which is a throwback to creation. On the surface, it looks like you created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in it. It looks like a reference to power and power only. But in Genesis, it means that and something else. It means something more. It means that God has created what is good and what is, when man lives in it, he's going to, he's going to be fruitful and he's going to, to flourish. To say that God created the heavens and the earth and put man in the middle of it and it said, be fruitful and multiply means that God has created the circumstance and the context in which people, human beings, are supposed to flourish and, 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 to, and, to, and to be fruitful and to be strong and not diminish, but to grow stronger and stronger. God creates that environment. And when they pray, they are basically saying, God, of whom there is no equal, in any power that we could imagine in the, the, the most genius part of our imagination and mind, but who at the same time wills our good, that's what they're saying. Now, quite frankly, and I know this is true of my own prayer, much of our prayer life can be categorized as a vote of no confidence for God. Our prayers at times can be perfunctory. Our times, at times our prayers can be rote. There are times when our prayers are, are very common. And, and what we mean by that is, you know, we pray for, for certain things that are basic. I mean, have you ever thought about why we pray for safety when we pray when we live in the safest country in the world? We say our prayers, but our prayers reveal that either we don't know God or we don't trust Him. One of the most insulting things that you can say to another human being is to say, I know you, but I don't trust you. And when we are not sure about His faithfulness, we begin to pray common prayers and not bold prayers. And in this particular prayer, it's all about a clear vision of the mission. One of the things that the book of Acts teaches us is that God is going to move His message of the gospel forward and that He intends and will use humans to do it. The question is whether or not we're going to be a part of it. And in this particular prayer, the early disciples recognized God's faithfulness and they banked on it. They banked on it. They said to him, we know you are faithful, now make us faithful. We know that you are faithful to your promises, now make us faithful to the mission. They do not pray for anything else in this prayer except boldness. Boldness. Consider their threats, but enable us to speak boldly. And through the healings and the signs and the wonders that you do through us in order for people to be able to see you, even if the world is going to hate us because of you. And they said, in the name of Jesus, amen, and the place rocked. And the fact that 
the persecution and the troublesome times were not going to go away is evident in history. There was a great persecution that broke out the first couple of centuries that the church is, is in existence. You know the stories of the Colosseum and the way the Christians were, were in all of the cities in which they lived around the known world and the Mediterranean world. They were slaughtered. And yet they were not shaken. And one of those that was not in favor of the Christian faith wrote about them sometime even after this prayer was written. And I've read this, this letter to you. I'm not going to read all of it. But it's an anonymous letter to a fellow by the name of Diognetus. And during the time of intense persecution, he writes, and this is part of it, Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death but raised to life again. They live in poverty but enrich many. They are totally destitute but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. End of quote. They went as people transformed by the gospel into the four corners of the planet with this message. And they were not shaken. Ellen and I watch... Um, we, we really like those Alaskan reality shows, mainly because I think I'm tough and that I can handle the cold and that, you know, the idea of just, you know, being off the radar from time to time sounds kind of good. And a, a couple of episodes of this one particular show we watch, uh, one of the older gentlemen goes out on this river that's uh, frozen and he knows that uh, it's kind of a dangerous thing and he's not sure how thick the ice is. And so he takes his axe and he starts kind of scooting across it and he starts hitting it and seeing just how thick the ice is because he knows that ice is ice, but if something heavier than ice gets on top of it, there's a quake. When these people uh, prayed this prayer, and all, all the prayer centered on was that God be glorified and that they be bold in that mission to glorify Him among his creation and among his, his human among his human creatures the walls shook because something heavier than the earth was there but it wasn't the first time when jesus died on the cross the earth shook and the rocks split it's in matthew chapter 27 when he breathed his last the earth shook and rocks split apart because God had come in judgment. We go to the next chapter, just two verses into chapter 28. And when Jesus resurrects from the dead, having hit death and not bounced back, but gone through the middle of death to the other side as the first of the resurrections, there is a violent earthquake. As an angel rolls back the rock, because God has come as the giver of eternal life. And knowing this, when those walls, when they prayed that prayer, 
boldly, knowing the nature of God and the nature of the world that they live in and, and the details of the mission, when those walls shook, they became unshakable. They became unshakable. And those are the prayers that as our church looks at this sixth largest city in America that we live in, gives us an idea of the kind of prayers to God's glory we should be praying. But maybe there are some things in your life that are shaking you right now because that worldview of God at the center, the ultimate reality, the knowledge of God that, that, that defies our finite minds to know and to plumb Him completely and exhaustively, maybe your life is shaken right now because those things that you base your security, the things that you get your identity from, those, those things that, that make you feel safe are now being threatened and so you feel threatened as well. And one of the things that you need to do is to repent of that and to change your worldview. That as a disciple of Jesus, God and God alone is at the center. And we recognize that and we live it. Or it may be that you're discovering for the first time that all of the things that you've based your life on are things that don't last. They're not very, well, they're very temporary. Temporary at best. And a lot of times when life gets tough, they're not the kind of thing that you can lean on. And if that describes you this morning and you're ready to make that decision to make God the very core of all that you are and think and do and live and breathe and eat on this planet, then we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and, and make those kinds of needs known to them as we stand and praise God together. I stand to praise you, but I follow my name.